most people think. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of What Most People Think. I am... How are you, first up? You alright? Good. It's been a couple of weeks. What's going on? Well, yeah, how are you, Jeff? Well, I've moved house and fuck me. I fucking... I'm never doing that again. I'm never doing that again. If there's ever a way of discovering how pointless pot plants are, it's when you're carrying the 15th one to a fucking van. But anyway, we're going to talk about the, the house move more. Um, later, but what it does mean is that I'm recording this intro in my son's bedroom, and I'm getting stared out by a Darth Vader actually at the moment. And maybe that's apt, obviously, as being a evil right winger myself. Uh, maybe he's my kindred spirit in a way. You know, I sometimes think with Darth Vader, as you get older and you get more right wing, you watch those films again. You go, you know what? I understand how he got to that place. I understand how he got there. And yes, maybe he overdid some of it, but he did ultimately. Uh, want to bring joy to the galaxy joy or order order to the galaxy uh, he was just misunderstood that's the problem i actually think the moment where darth vader chucks the emperor down that shaft is actually the saddest moment of, of the trilogy i think they were just on the brink of greatness but anyway that's just my view uh so if this is the first time you listen to this podcast um it is the well it's you know i'm a right of center guy that voted leave i'm trying to you know, take the piss out of the other side, but have have them still listen. Is that working? I don't know. I still I do seem to get people listening from both sides, and we have uh, we have guests. Uh, we have guests on the show. Uh, well, today we have the brilliant um, Dominic Frisby, who uh, just listen, man. You sit back and learn something. This one because uh, Dominic is a very unique person within comedy he is both a great stand-up comic he's been around on the circuit a while he does edinburgh and stuff but he's also he's also a money guy like he is a financial expert and he's written a book which he's going to talk about and he is uh he's had some great tips in the past he's one of the first people that was telling all the comics to invest in gold and being comics we didn't invest in gold obviously we invested in fucking motorways sausage rolls from greg's that's what we invest in um, but yeah, very smart guy. So get get your thinking caps on for this one. You know, obviously we have a laugh along the way, but it's a bit like the Simon Evan one, Evans one in a way. We you're gonna you're gonna learn stuff. You're gonna learn stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm in I'm in the new house. Uh, I don't know if property's the greatest investment at this point in time. As we stare over the cliff edge, there was one part of the uh, moving house that I enjoyed. By the way, I've only moved 250 yards from where we used to live. It's quite funny, isn't it? Because there's there's an ongoing debate about, in British sort of social life, about somewheres and anywheres. Are you someone that is really rooted to a place, which is perhaps more working class characteristic, and or are you an anywhere? You know, one of those people that congregates to wherever has got the best new fucking artisan coffee shops. So I am definitely a somewhere. You know, I lived the first 27 years of my life in South London, um, and then I've moved to this part of the world in Cambridgeshire, and... My last two house moves were an hour and a quarter, sorry, a mile and a quarter and 250 yards. But I enjoyed driving the van. I enjoyed driving the van because I think that that really unleashed the white van man in me. You know, I, I the moment I sat in that Ford Transit doing weird fucking shuttle runs across a 250-yard stretch, I, I became t- uh, 20% more Brexit. That was the first thing that happened. And uh, came, became more sexist, started wolf whistling, Wolf whistled a woman who was my she was my wife, but it's still it's still untold geezer points, I think, for that. 
And yeah, and as I've moaned about my, my middle age ailments, my I've now just basically got a fucking two claw hands. Um, so you know we're we're in a new house, but I can't I can't feed myself anymore. So that was that was worth it. So before we get into the chat with Dominic Frisbee, um, just a quick update on the political stuff. I do I do seem to see a growing schism between what's happening with Boris uh, in the newspapers and the commentary and what's happening in the polls. You know, like the polls all seem to suggest that that his approach is kind of cutting through. And then, but all the papers that you're seeing is like, well, another terrible week for Boris. So he got he got blanked by the president of Luxembourg. And you see it how you want to see it. So the paper all like humiliation for Johnson. Whereas a lot of Leave voters will look at that and think, yeah, this is you know the EU sort of playing their games in the weird, high-handed, supercilious way that they do it. You know, and I'm getting, I must say, I'm getting a bit sick of these these comedians going for viral moments, you know, um, sorry, politicians going for viral moments. There's been a few in the House of Commons, Jess Phillips. I quite like Jess Phillips, but there was one recently where it did seem a bit scripty. Do you know what I mean? It did seem like it was written by fucking Ken Loach, uh, like like the end of I, Daniel Blake. Um, and, And, you know, they've got one eye on it. I mean, David Lammy, is another one of these guys that he just, he's looking for the retweets and the likes. Well, let me tell you something, people. You know, you most of Britain isn't on Twitter, right? Most of Britain doesn't give a shit about these things. When it comes to getting re-elected, I'm afraid that they're not going to be counting up your Instagram following, yeah? They're not going to be going, oh, yeah, but he did get 5,500 retweets for that obvious sort of put down on Donald, that comment about Donald Trump's hair. But yeah, yeah, that, that that's not a, a cross... Um, in a box and we've got the Lib Dems now the sneaky fucking Lib Dems the shape-shifting Lib Dems who, who who claim to hate you know populism but have used the slogan bollocks for Brexit and you know they are Democrats but they want to revoke a public vote I mean they are it's funny as well what I'm noticing on the liberal left right you've got those people who in 2015 they hated the Lib Dems didn't they they called them the austerity enablers the tuition fee enablers and then the moment there's a chance they might have to spend half a half an hour longer queuing up passport control they're like well you know what lib dems aren't so bad you know you know joe swinson she's great she's great you know she's got she wears nice earrings and i i think she's really nailing her look you know i think she's really nailed that look i noticed as well joe swinson when she did her her leader's speech at the conference. Um, by the way, just just check it out. Tim Farron clapping with his thumbs. Just just look at that on Twitter or search it. That, 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 that's worth looking at. But also, Joe Swinton was doing this thing that people do when they get into a leadership position where she's just started speaking this slowly. And I think I know why. is because they, they, if you, you just say less words that way. There's less stuff that you could be held accountable for if you speak at like a third of the rate of a normal human being you know that's why Stuart Lee speaks so slow because then you just have to put in less jokes right right you listening Stuart probably not I'm thinking probably not uh look I am a fan of him but I do enjoy digging at him so yeah they're gonna revoke article 50 I'd love to know what the they've often the Lib Dems said about you know the Tories what's the plan for there's no planning in place for a no deal Brexit well I would throw it back to them and go what's your plan for a post revocation political landscape where people no longer feel that their vote necessarily will be enacted by the government what's your fucking plan for that you know when when turnout for general elections slips down to about 40% what's your 
plan for that? And of course, they don't really have a plan, the Lib Dems, do they? Because they're not going to be asked to do it, you know? It's like me going, yeah, well, if, if, I, if I hosted the BAFTAs, I, I'd get my cock out. I would. I fucking would, man. And everyone's going, well, Jeff, you're never going to get asked to host the BAFTAs. Yeah, I'm just saying, but if I did, I would show the world my balls. And I saw that the SNP got, finally got called out as nationalists and populists um, in, in a German newspaper, Der Spiegel. I mean, the, how the SNP have got this far without people properly questioning the fundamental paradox at the heart of how they see, you know, they want to stay in the EU, but they want to leave Britain. They want to, they believe in successful unions, but not the one with Britain because uh, they're English bastards. Basic, basically, that's their strategy, isn't it? In a nutshell, successful unions are great, but uh, English bastards. That if you could put it, if you could put it like in a manifesto, um, that would be it. And fucking God knows what the Green Party's view is on the Green Party on paper, right? They should be against freedom of movement, right? They should be because all of that carbon, all those planes. I mean, the Green Party, if anyone should have a policy on movement, it should be the stay the fuck where you are policy. That that should be on paper the Green Party's policy. But I bet you it's not, is it? Because the Green Party have sort of morphed out, isn't it? They've got, they've sort of t- taken a little bit of that support of Labour voters they, who don't want to be associated with anti-Semitism and who are still angry about the tuition fees thing. So that they're now voting for, they just want to vote for a party that kind of still sound calls. Well, I vote Green. You know, well, what's the what's the Green policy on uh, defence? I mean, if, if the Green Party, if the Green Party got in power, what the fuck are we going to do if Russia attacks? You know what I mean? We're going to be firing fucking compost heaps at them. Come on. Anyway, look, um, let's crack on with the show. Before we do, uh, a thank you and a fuck you. Um, so a quick thank you. Uh, I've had the latest set of tour sales in, and there are loads of there's been loads of sales with the last two episodes of Mash Report going out. Thank you to everybody that shared those clips, the clips of me talking about the coup uh, at Westminster and also the, the clip of me talking about liberals catastrophizing. Uh, as I've said before, you know, numbers talk, bullshit walks, people look at this stuff and every time I go for a meeting trying to get a proper format away that maybe houses a more right of centre and politically contrarian voices, I can point to stuff like that. So please keep sharing clips and content and all that kind of thing. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, fuck you. There was a writer sacked from Saturday Night Live, right? This, this fella, I can't remember, Carl Gillis or something. Um, and, you know, he said some stupid stuff on a podcast hey who's who's ever heard of that right uh but he said some stuff probably stuff that I, you know it's stuff that i wouldn't say right so it was it was racist um but he what they've said subsequently is that saturday night live uh, need to have a vetting procedure a, a fucking vetting procedure a better vetting procedure for their cast i'm like this is a comedy show why has comedy become like this it's not you're not, like, appointing people to be close protection for POTUS. You know what I mean? This guy's writing fucking jokes. What, what, how are they going to get to? What, the next series of MASH Report, we're just going to get people raking through our fucking bins, you know what I mean? To see if we bank offshore. Like, I'm not, I didn't say that for any specific reason. Just for the record, I do not bank offshore. But I do, I do find it really weird how comedy has just become, that we argue about it so much. I think, like, future historians will look back and go, it was really odd that in an age of Brexit and Trump and trade wars and climate change that that these pricks found so long to argue over jokes, right? Of what basically are jokes. So fuck you, anybody 
that treats jokes as anything other than jokes, right? So let's crack on with uh, this week's show. Like I say, Dominic Frisbee, funny man, intelligent man, strap yourself in, laugh a bit, learn a bit, as we spend some time in the company of the fantastic Dominic Frisbee. So welcome to What Most People Think, Dominic Frisbee. Thank you very much, Jeff. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's nice. Well, just last night we did a gig together, a political gig run by Andy Zaltzman called Political Animal. And I don't know if it's a sign of how political comedy's changed, but me and you were on in the same half together, two guys that weren't out-and-out lefties. This is this is radical, isn't it? Well, it was pretty radical. And political Animal's been going a long time, and Andy's yeah. you know, pretty centre-left in his politics. And yeah. you know he's got the bugle, he's got a big following, and it's mostly people who are sort of aligned, you know, think along the same lines lines as him and um, you know he jokingly said before the show that that political animal has swung to the hard right because you and I were on Um, but you know I I think we both voted leave and I think our politics are fairly similar in a lot of respects but I'm I'm what you'd call a libertarian you know quite militantly libertarian and I did this one song about crony capitalism I've done political animal before and I'm always a bit careful about what I do and you yes. know, I don't want to there's no point because they do seem broadly quite right yeah on. they're open minded yeah. and Andy yeah. wants people he, del- he booked us because he wants yeah. to get people who don't just sing from the same song sheet the whole yeah. time but but at the same time you know there's there's no point um, you know, going to a communist rally if you're Jacob Rees-Mogg because you're mm. not going to... Well, he probably would do that, but you know what I mean. Yeah, just to be a prick. Yeah, yeah. or whatever, just to... Because he's he likes arguing with people in his courteous good way. good He's very good at it. Yeah. And so... But anyway, I, I'm, I do one song called Crony Capitalism Will Not Be Tolerated. Yeah. And what annoys me about the, the society in which we live today is it calls itself capitalism, yeah. but it's no such thing. Um, it, it has the veneer of capitalism. It pres- preserves the the front, but actually, you know, so many people get on not because of you know they're brilliant businessmen or brilliant risk takers. It's yeah. just because they're milking the system in some way. And so, you know, one company is granted a monopoly on a train line, yeah. and once it's got that monopoly, it can pretty much do what it likes. It's not like other companies can go along and build competing rail lines, mm. and then so you know, and that, and that competition would. If we were properly capitalist society then you know other companies could build rail lines between London and Edinburgh and then different people would compete and that would drive the price lower but when GNER owns the rail line so and you know when you see things like Nick Clegg leaves the government to work for Facebook to lobby governments to grant special favours to Facebook and there's this revolving door and it's just so all these crony capitalist things that just wind me up. And so I've got this song to the music of the revolution will not be televised yes. by uh, Gil Scott Heron. And uh, but I do it. Crony capitalism will not be tolerated, and just list out hundreds of. Yeah, crony the audience things. did seem to go for that. They did I go it. to a point. They were because they're all things that piss everyone. Off. Yeah, exactly, including me. And uh, what's what's interesting coming across is that you see you say capitalism with a with a positive sense. You see it as a, like a creative force, and actually, crony capitalism is the opposite. Of yeah, it, you see? it's kind of like um, I suppose it's you know like these kind of old communist regimes that, that had certain continuity elements as to who was earning money. They're not so dissimilar once it becomes well, so they are. It's a rigged system. Yeah. And and then when people get so angry with capitalism, it's because there's this veneer. Actually, what they're really angry with is crony capitalism, but they think Mm. it's capitalism. Mm. And milking the system 
And there, so I, that's why I'm a libertarian, because there is no system to milk, because libertarian is, you know, we believe in as little government as possible. And yeah. so the, the less system there is to milk, the less crony capitalism there can be. So libertarians just like anarchists who already sort got of. houses by the time they decided, <laughs> decided they were anarchists, or are they... All day Tories who think Tories not quite groovy enough because you guys you're the cool sort of thing of I know it's not specifically the right but you're kind of like the the cool guys it sounds well better, doesn't it? it you because um, you know we believe in in governments taxing as little as possible and spending yeah. as little as possible and there's you know there's different different extremity you know the, the most extreme libertarian would be an anarchist there should yeah. be no government and a sort of more um, you know, but it's an American thing and guns should be legal. I'm not entirely sure I think guns should be legal, but I'm, it's really an argument I'm not very good on. Yeah. Uh, but it's when all libertarian... It's the weak thing in the libertarian argument is, is guns, in my opinion. But anyway, um, but, uh, you know, a Gladstonian liberal, a classical liberal, mm. um, if you look on Wikipedia, it says a libertarian is a classical liberal. Now, mm. a classical liberal would be, um, you know, he believed that, that government should build infrastructure, that government should provide for the defence of the nation, the policing of the nation, those yeah. kind of things. You know, pretty much kind of what Thatcher thought, mm. that, that kind of thing. Not, and not um, a health service, necessarily. Um, so that would be a, a much more reduced form of government, you know, much smaller than where we are today. Mm. And the hard right, I'm using the term hard right, I hate that expression, but, you know, the right of the Conservative Party that believes in spending as little money as possible, you know, you could say that's libertarian. But you've got guys like, say, Jacob Rees-Mogg out there, Mm. Steve Baker and others. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Baker are both, um, you know, deeply religious men, and they wouldn't, I think they probably voted against gay marriage, for example. Mm. Now, for me, as a libertarian, you know, I don't give a shit quite frankly yeah, somebody I, wants to get married so that I'm sort of far out well, yeah, with Corbyn and this, on that one do you know what I mean yeah, no, no, I agree and I'm probably in that mould where it, it, it's staying out of the minutiae of, of people's lives yeah. where possible because like you say there's certain big ticket things you know the building of motorways you kind of understand that, that maybe there's a benefit for the state getting involved but I do think that you know it's funny because when it comes to like maybe like the trans issue like again I'm, I'm kind of the libertarian in me guides my view on that which is sort of I don't understand why you have to ask permission from the government to decide yeah. who you are. You know, the idea that, that, that transitioning can happen overnight seems, well, you know, again, maybe that's like a, a, an overcorrection, but there is something in, instinctive to me that balks, uh, so even, even planning permission, and I know, look, if you've got some fucking house next year and suddenly block out all your son, but just anything where I have to engage with the state to be given permission to do anything bugs the shit out. Yeah, well, it's very anti-nanny state. Yeah. So... You know, so that's where you get this thing of I'm economically conservative but socially liberal. Yeah, but but which a lot of people fall I think into most that. people yeah, are. Yeah. I think if you you, you know I've, I've been saying it for quite a long time, and we're mm. starting to see it with Boris now. But broadly speaking, most mm. British people want lower taxes, less state, and more individual responsibility. I think most yeah. people think taxes are a little bit too high. We have a little bit too much state. I mean the the, the that's the silent majority think mm. along those lines, which is basically a libertarian point of view. Mm. At the moment, tax is about 50% of GDP. And, you, you, you know, the hard... Uh, you know, it used to be 10%. 1900, it was 10%. Mm. 
And so there's quite a big change. Well, yeah, and if you're, say, a person that, that is on a, uh, a kind of basic tax pay, a 20%, right? So if you're paying 20% tax, then um, with national insurance, which is the sneaky fucking... Well, you're just it? thinking of income tax, Jeff. Yeah, you know, you but, I'm just, but if we compile, we like, a, you know, a view of where you're paying tax, so you're paying that basic 20%, then you're paying your class fours, right? Your class twos, which definitely take it up another 10%. Then you're paying VAT, Paying stamp duty, fuel but, taxes, the fuel taxes, death tax, de- tax on cigarettes, alcohol. I mean, one of the, the incredible things about this country is that the people on the left in this country think of it as an intrinsically right-wing country by definition. But if you look at like National Health Service, National State Broadcaster, National Curriculum, the level of taxation, it's well, I've just written a book about tax. Yeah. <laughs> it comes out on October the 17th, and so that's probably about when, when this podcast will come out, more or less. A yeah, yeah, not before. before that, yeah. But if you look at the Soviet Union, like even in a... What's the book called, just before we go? Daylight Robbery. Daylight Robbery. That's where the expression Daylight, daylight Robbery comes yeah. from, the windows tax. People stealing oh, people's right, daylight. Oh, really? Yeah. You think it means brazen theft, but it, it, yeah. it didn't. Some of our listeners there, what we we are, what fifteen episodes in, we learn we learn something. You do. I'm always I'm yeah. always interesting, occasionally amusing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's um, that, um, the the it, it, so the Soviet Union, yeah. and it's even somewhere like North Korea today, where it's you know all of your labour is owned, all of your property is owned. You don't mm-hmm. own anything yourself. But even there, the Soviet Union, there was still a black market, and so it was only roughly 75% of GDP mm. was, was owned by the state. And then in the most, like, you know, the freest societies in history, ancient Greece, the Republic of Rome, early United States in the, 19th, in the 1900s, Britain in the late 1900s, these kind of places, taxes were only at 10 or 15% of GDP, mm-hmm. which is a number that goes all the way back to the traditions of the tithe, when you would give one ten percent of your produce or your labour to whoever mm. it was to, you know, for communal purposes, and that's the traditional number. We, they call it the tithe because it's one tenth because we have ten fingers mm. on our hand, and it was an easy calculation. Well, a commission in comedy tends to work between yeah. parameters of ten and fifteen percent. It's always yeah, it's gone up to fifteen, but it always used to be ten percent. Yeah. Their agents used to be called the ten percenters at one point. Mm. But anyway, so that's at one extreme you've got Soviet Union seventy five percent. At the other extreme, in, in really free societies, you're at ten or fifteen percent, mm. and we're at fifty percent now. So we're in the middle. We're not. We're, we're slightly more Soviet Union mm, yeah. than we are total freedom. And, and tax is a sort of measure of freedom. You can measure how free a... You know, 100% tax is when, is when you're a slave or a serf, when everything... Yeah. You don't own anything. You don't even own your own labour. And then the other extreme is, is anarchy, mm. where you, you don't owe anyone to anyone. You have total ownership of yourself. So, you, I mean, you are... And we're halfway between the two. So, you are, so I mean, like, your, your career and all the different strands to it is so interesting. Because, obviously, when we first started gigging together in the early noughties and stuff like that. I remember you did some, some great characters and stuff like that. And you've always been sort of changing, I guess. And like, I mean, I would tell you a very skilled comic, but I never would have known this other stuff that you've gone on. I mean, is the book, is the book comedic in any way or is it, or is it a properly... No, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's there, there's like one or two mm. witticisms in it, but it's yeah. not funny. Not but, you, but has that always been going on alongside your stand-up career, the economic no, work? And that came, it came, like I always used to do characters yeah. and I got so frustrated. I started out in 1997 doing yeah. an act called The Upper Class Rapper and I got so frustrated yeah. um, with, you know, Don Ward. I remember Don Ward who runs a comedy store. You know, I went to a comedy store, stormed The Upper Class Rapper and he turned and he went, well, we don't put characters in here. Al Murray can't play the store. And Al Murray had been nominated at the time like three times in a yeah, row yeah. to be 
uh, as, as you know, Perrier best thingy. And, um, you know, that was Al Murray at the height of his powers around about the turn of the century. He just was an amazing act. And I remember thinking, well, Don Ward's telling telling me that Al Murray's not good enough to play the bloody store. Then Dominic Frisbee is the other. And there was this real sort of prejudice. And, you know, you if you're going to make it as a stand-up, you, particularly early on, you need to be fairly flexible. If the guy turns to you and says, you go on first, you've yeah. got to go on first. And you've got to be good enough to go on first and not die on your ass. Now, going on first is often the hardest. If you're not an experienced compare, yeah. going on first can often be the hardest slot on the bill. And... But that's that's part of it, you know. If, yeah. if you want to get booked again, you've got to be easy to work with and agreeable and all these things. And then when I was going to people, look, if I do the upper class rap, I go on first. I promise you, it just dies. The act just dies. It'll storm it in the middle. It'll storm it at the end, but it will yeah. die if I go on first. And then I go on first, and it would die. And then they go, holy shit. And so you know, so there was a real. It was very hard to be flexible enough to get. And some people who like variety hmm. would would champion it and book me loads. And I did other characters as well. Morris the Morris Dance was okay going on first because there was a lot of interaction with the audience. But the yeah. upper class rappers to music and in rhyme, it just died going on first. And but then in the middle of closing, it, it, it would take the roof off places. But so people who like variety and bit different, yeah, would book me. But other people were like, no, I can't. But were you, were you so were you were you working in economic? Were you making money from kind of journalism about money? Well, and- my other job was doing voiceovers. Yes, and, I think anyone already listening, you've got a great voice. You're man. Very kind, thank you. Yeah. And, um, you know, I made a bit of money doing voiceovers and uh, I was the voice... Any, any examples of things we know? Uh, yeah. Werther's original. Each one lovingly made in gold. That, I mean, you talk about gold. That, what's that, five grand's worth there? Probably more, because I was like three or four years I was the voice of Werther's. Crikey. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, you do lots of these cartoons. I must have narrated over a thousand documentaries in my time. And... Um, but anyway, so I made a bit of money and I wanted to invest it. And then yeah. this was about, would have been about 2005, 2006. And I started looking, talking to fund managers and stuff. And they yeah. were taking their 2% and their fees. And they were all a bit patronising. And um, I'd never understood how it was that house prices in London could cost so much money relative to what people earned. Yeah. I, I remember buying my first flat in 1993 and thinking they were expensive then. Mm. And then compared to what they are now. And so I started reading about that and I started reading about the inflation and, and the, of the money supply and how money had been debased and all these various things. And I became convinced that gold was a, the best place to invest. And this was about 2006, 2007. And because gold used to be money mm. until the First World War, um, there's always this sort of, it's a very political investment. Mm. And people who believe, like statists, tend to believe like you'll, there's a lot of relationship between people who like gold and like Bitcoin mm. and libertarians and anarchists because basically they don't think governments should have the power to print money. And when governments have the power to print money, it gives governments disproportionate power. Mm. And so the, the financial crisis, for example, governments printed money to bail out the banks. And the consequence of that was this huge economic inequality. See, a lot of people just, just won't un- understand, like, on, on a sort of layman's level, how... How the fuck that works? But then I guess all money was originally printed, right? So it's, no, it it's wasn't. In, in money its, was money well, was, so it was like a finite amount of money. I mean, well, gold is finite. Gold is rare, and gold is precious, and right. gold was money. But and actual like sort of pounds and stuff. That it, well, a pound once meant a pound of sterling silver. Right. That's so it, so there was a, again there was a finite. It was sort a, of it was a weight of it. it was a weight of precious metal. Yeah. And um, what happened is in the First World War. You know, so governments 
but we we started using paper as money with the invention of the printing press, yeah. and it became more convenient to use notes instead of holding gold coins. Mm-hmm. But that note was always redeemable for a certain amount of gold or silver. Yeah. Does that make sense? So you could take yes, your yeah, note yeah, into yeah, a bank, an and, and the bank could not issue more. It did a bit, but it could not issue much more. Um, paper than it had gold to back it up because yeah. if everyone came and redeemed their gold at the same time there would be a bank on a run on the bank and that was a real risk and that yeah. that quite naturally kept banking in balance but then in the first world war the germans did it the french did it and the english the british did it mm. which is they needed to print money to pay for the war and mm. there was not the gold in the vaults to pay for the war to mm. go on for the length that it did. So they, all three nations took their countries off the gold standard and that enabled that war to just go on and on and on and become the terrible war of attrition that it was. If they'd stuck to the gold standard, if money, they could not have mm. printed the money and they, there was just not the money to pay for the war to go on for as long as it did. So people would often think, you know, what is, what is stopping them? Why, why don't they print more? If, you, if you're talking about investing in, in infrastructure... Uh, it's this fear of inflation, right? Runaway, you know, yeah. you just keep lobbing money. Eventually, people start charging more, and then sure, if you print, if you print more of something, you debase yeah. it. Yeah. Now, of course, you don't print money anymore. Like ninety-seven percent of money today is is digital. It only mm. does only three percent of the money is 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 actual cash. Mm. And if you think, like, if you look at you know just your own accounts, mm. you you've got all your money in the bank, whatever you've got in the bank. And what you've to, to actually what you have in cash, mm. you've probably got you know a few hundred quid maybe lying around the house from a couple of cash gigs you've done here and there. But m- most of the rest of what you earn is is in the bank, and that doesn't exist as cash. It's only only mm. exists digitally. Um, so they don't actually print money today. It just gets created, you know, through a process called quantitative easing and and by various other means. It's very it sounds like something for pensioners, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's so just it the whole like <laughs> to do with the colon, but. <laughs> The whole thing, the whole game is massively, massively rigged, and this is why we have Bitcoin because it's an attempt to solve it through free market means. But if essentially, if you create more of something, if you print more of something, you devalue it. So if there was a hundred pounds that existed in the world, and then suddenly you create another hundred pounds, but you don't create a concomitant amount of goods or services, then effectively you reduce the purchasing power of that hundred pounds by half. You don't tell anyone though. They don't tell anyone. But this is why you ask yourself every year, why does life constantly seem to get more expensive? And, Mm. you know, the house I want to live in goes up in price and the oil and running Mm. the car and all these things just go up in price. That's a consequence of this constant monetary debasement that's Mm. been going on. I'm throwing another one on a slightly different thing that goes up in price. Fucking car insurance, right? There you go. But, like, I've got 15 years of no claims, right? We're at the point now where... Do you tell them you're a comic? Yeah. Yes. And the, the they should be paying to uh, insure me, like the, the, for the fucking privilege. <laughs> so just butting in quickly here with a couple of tour plugs. A lot of the uh, shows are selling very well. There's some that are close to selling out. Bath did sell out, and then we've released some extra tickets. Uh, Dorking, Didcot, um, loads of shows. Uh, Leicester Square. Guildford, Reading already sold out and loads of shows now. Brighton, Old Market, if you want to come to that one. Um, buy those soon. Monmouth, Savoy, that's selling really well as well. 
Um, it sounds like I'm just playing a hotel in Monmouth, doesn't it? The, the Monmouth Savoy. Yeah, he's in the fucking canteen. You know what I mean? He'll be serving breakfast, but doing one-liners. Um, there's a sh- there's a few. There's one coming up very shortly, Sunday of next week, uh, which is the 29th. I'm in Birmingham at the Glee Club. It's sold well, but it's a big room there, so they can kind of extend it to fit. So let's try and get as many people to that as possible. Last tour show I had, and last tour in Birmingham was amazing. So it'd be good to see as many people as possible at that one. Next week also... Belfast, Belfast. If I do a shit accent, that's gonna that's gonna not help, is it? But uh, that's coming up. Glasgow on Thursday of next week. Belfast on Friday, the twenty seventh, uh, and then Lancaster on the Saturday. Does anyone live in Lancaster? I don't think I've ever met anyone that lives in Lancaster. I know it's a place. I know it's got a decent sized population, but it's just it's just just it's just not in the public psyche, is it? It's, as a place, right? I've been there before. It's kind of weirdly middle class. They've got a shisha bar. I didn't think I'd go that far north and find a fucking shisha bar. But there you go. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of like the Harrogate of the Northwest, right? Lancaster, that's how you like to think of yourself, you fucking show-offs with your shisha bars. I bet you got a Waitrose, haven't you? I bet you fucking talk about that. When, when people come and visit you from other less privileged towns in the Northwest, and let's be honest, there's a few... They come around, you go, yeah, yeah, we're just at uh, Waitrose. Oh, we got, did I mention we got a fucking Waitrose? Yeah, we wait, yeah, no, we don't like to go there. Um, to, oh, it's very dear, isn't it? But I do go there. That's what people do when they talk about how much money they spend. They sort of let you know, but don't let you know. Oh, it's so pricey there. So it's like holidays, isn't it? Yeah, we went to St. Lucia. I mean, it's very expensive. Very, yeah. We're going next year, actually. There is something unique in there about rich northerners you know <laughs> it's, uh, it's like the old Harry Enfield character who's it the Brummie we are significantly richer than you fuck I miss Harry Enfield what an important social commenter he was we don't we don't get sketch comedy like that anymore maybe that's what I'll do a sketch comedy so everyone can fucking shoot it down um, listen man but yeah those tour shows Glasgow Belfast Aberdeen as well way at the back end of the tour that's one where I could do with a, f- a few more friends we've you know we're off the mark there we're we're doing okay but it's quite a big room and so maybe i've just gone too far north maybe there's just a point where there's just fucking no one lives there or maybe like all the people that live in aberdeen are just fucking oil oil wankers who are so rich they don't actually need comedy but but prove me wrong anyway let's get back to the show with mr dominic frisbee <laughs> One of the things I love about driving is that is that I, I have to, if I want to stay alive, be present and focused on what I'm doing. Because there's so many other activities now in life where you can just sort of just devolve and just sort of melt away into some other train of thought. I think it's really good for human beings. It's what worries me about driverless cars is that I think it's really good for human beings to have ultimate agency and responsibility. Because our generation of blokes, right, you probably still you don't. don't, you don't I, I pine for the, I don't have a car. Yeah, you had one though. For I a had while. one, yeah, and yeah. I just I, I hated um, driving back home from gigs late at night. Yeah. So and I hate like having to drive around, pick up my kids and stuff. Yeah. So um, and but I had a lease to car, and the lease ran out, and I just started using Uber for a couple of weeks while I just yeah. looked around for a new car. And I thought actually this is really convenient, and over the I've read various things that if you get an Uber for every journey you do in a year yeah. um, within the M25 you end up and just hire a car when you go outside the M25 yeah. it ends up costing you less over the course of the year yeah I'm sure it does I never and then, thought about that and yeah so I, I looked at that and I thought oh, actually and if I just send an Uber to pick up yeah. my kids who are a lot older now instead of you know so let's say I've got to go and pick up my son from football or something yeah. it takes me 20 minutes to drive there 10 minutes of hanging around 20 minutes to drive back it's the best part of an hour 
Whereas yeah. if he just gets in an Uber and comes home, then I don't have to do anything, and I've got I've earned an hour. And then how much do I value my time at on an yeah. hourly basis? You know, so it just made me so much more productive. That's a very clever way to think about it. What, what's your Uber rating then? If you're doing this? four point seven nine. You think, and yeah, you should. It, be... I cannot understand who hasn't. And there's like one journey when I went. Because you've done so many, isn't that like. But you it know... just never changes. Yeah. And there was like, there was one journey where I got halfway across town and I forgot my ukulele and I was yeah. pissed out of my head and I made him go all the way back to get my ukulele. Yeah. I would have given me one star for that. Yeah. And it actually threw me out the car in the end. So that one nightmare journey aside, mate, but tell I can't you, see. Mate, I've always been charming. I don't talk about politics in the car. You know, I don't. One, as we know uh, from having done the Edinburgh Festival, one bad review can really <laughs> just uh, linger around there. Uh, you did. I've you... got, got one star Uber journey rating and a two star review in Chortle 15 years years ago and both still rankle mate yeah. I've, had, I've had you know more bad views in the last 12 months than I think seriously yeah. it's not no, I mean just the kind of thing that, that I do you know like the the, uh, the TV show in a way I got really good ones and stuff but I sort of have a natural rainbow arc to what I do now okay. so the last time I was up here in earnest 2017 you know like uh, four and a half star right down to a one star who gave you one star the list no, the woman that came and reviewed, I, I would have spoke about this on, on a recent podcast, but the, look, at the end of the day, she might have just fucking hated it. Equally, uh, the pencil did seem yeah. to have been a bit sharpened. <laughs> yeah, but she might have hated it, but should, should well, they yeah. clearly don't. But, you know, even if, you, you, I can still see that you're a good comic who knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but the, the one mistake star. that they make sometimes is, is a one star, a two star is just a... Yeah. But like a one star, if they're scathing enough, it does actually degenerate a little bump in sales because people like she'd sort of tried to make out like I was evil and like mendacious sort of character. So people are like fuck. So you either get people that are a bit like that, thinking that's my guy, or people are thinking he can't really really be that bad. But the problem I wonder that critics have now more than ever is that most people have content online. So the old days where they yeah. had this, there was an authority to what they yeah. said. Uh, it was almost finite, finite in some respects but now people go oh, I'll just quit YouTube yeah I mean I've got two things there I've got four stars from Kate Copstick who's sort of well recognised yeah, yeah. reviewer in the Scotsman now once upon a time four stars in the Scotsman was enough to sell your everyone read it when it was mm. still print and uh, you'd put it on your board outside your venue and that'd be enough to sell you mm. um, out for the rest of the run probably mm. certainly five stars in the Scotsman would four stars would be pretty good and you know, four stars, mine's a free show. And then, like, three or four days later, the Scotsman made me the pick of the musical comedies at the mm-hmm. Fringe. Right, that's a great thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, ahead yeah. of, like, Frisky and Manish and... Yes. And who, who else does musical comedy? Um, a band of man? Yeah, a band of man. A couple, and those guys are all mm. selling out 100, you know, 500-seater venues, probably bigger, mm. even a 1,000 in some cases. I was top, and I'm only in a 45-seater venue... Mm. And uh, it didn't make any difference to my numbers at all. It's incredible how quickly it's changed. It's both kind of like inspiring in one way because it reminds yeah. you of the need to get like uh, content out there. Speaking of getting content out there, your your song did really well. Was it seventeen point four million fuck yous? Uh, seventeen million fuck offs. Seventeen million fuck offs. So this was kind of like celebrating what the British public did to the establishment on the day of the Brexit oh, vote. And just just tell us how, how how well that that that, that did. Well, that was that was uh, we. I made that song. I've I've started learning the ukulele because mm. when I was doing music to backing tracks, you you're constrained by the timing of the backing track, and if the audience laughs a lot or laughs a little, you mm. you can't adapt your timing. 
So I thought I'll learn the ukulele because then I then I got the flexibility to slow down and speed up depending on how much the audience are laughing. I've always liked mm. loved writing songs and lyrics and stuff. And then um, I discovered that my ukulele teacher. It took quite a few months to discover this. Is a mm. militant Brexiteer libertarian. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of like and I thought I could just smell him out as one but he always keep, he always turns up in a, in a yeah. sort of blazer and a little pin t- uh, sort of pin pencil moustache and is very formal and very respectable mm. never discusses politics but I just would drop hints and I could just tell with his body language yeah, and he's yeah. like even more militant libertarian than I am so I started I'd, we'd, I'd start instead of him teaching yeah. me ukulele we'd, I'd work on songs with him during the ukulele lessons yeah. and I've, I've now since found out he's also one of the best guitarists in the country he's just a phenomenal guitarist but whatever, for whatever reason he's ended up as a ukulele teacher and uh, but anyway I could literally go to him I've got this idea for a song and uh, there's a bit of this and a bit of that and then he'd kind of go oh well you should play C there and D7 and then G and mm. and he'd just like put these songs together and he'd do it like in 15 minutes it was so fast mm. and I said I had this idea for a song where you know the 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 people said you know there's going to be half a million jobs lost and the English said fuck off and there's going to be, uh, you know, stock market collapse. The English said, fuck off. You're going to lose your job. The English said, and I had this thing. And he mm. said, oh, well, you should do that to uh, the music of Uncle Tom Cobbley. And I'm like, what's mm. Uncle Tom Cobbley? And it's like this old Devon folk tune. Mm. Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. And it sort of sings a bit like a football song. It just, it just yeah. lends itself. And so anyway, we, we did the song. And I did it, went and did it a new material night at Comedy Unleashed. And I did another couple of songs that had been going very well in the clubs. And then somebody just came up to me afterwards and said, that, that just made me feel so proud. And that song's brilliant and blah, blah, blah. And they were so enthusiastic about it. I thought, I'm onto something here. And I phoned up my friend who makes videos. This was the Tuesday. And in the Wednesday, um, and then we went to, we recorded it with Martin playing mm. the thing in the, in the studio. And then the, that afternoon we went and recorded it in um, Parliament Square. We just, me and a friend just walked around Parliament Square and recorded this song and we did it filmed it in no more than 90 minutes hmm. and we stuck it up on YouTube it was just towards them it was we got it out like a week before we were supposed to leave March 31st and if you were passionate about Brexit which I am a lot of people were pretty despondent back then because it wasn't happening it was being undermined we thought it wasn't going to happen and all those various things and it just caught a nerve and Guido Fawkes retweeted it and then everyone just retweeted it and then suddenly within a week there was going. There was a campaign to get this song to number one, and it was like the best-selling single on Amazon, and it was like seventeenth in the iTunes charts, and it was had hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube, and where it went most bananas was Facebook. It got like over two million hits on Facebook. Unfortunately, Facebook hits don't count to to your number one thing and the thing, but yeah. it just went. It was. It's really exciting if you ever make a video and suddenly it goes viral. Well, if we just have a little uh, gap here, because I'll just play in a little bit of it and come back to chat. Sir David Cameron, Theresa May, George Osborne and the Treasury, Tony Blair, John Major, the BBC, the Bank of England, Mark Carney, the EU, the IMF, the US President, St Obama, back of the queue, loads of celebrities, Gary Lineker, JK Rowling, Benedict Cumberbatch, Lord Adonis, who the fuck's he anyway? The British told them to fuck off, 17 million fuck offs. So yes, yeah, is, is it still available now? Is it, or are you just yeah, sort of I've ticking done, over. On? As a result of that, I've produced a whole album called yeah. Libertarian Love Songs, ties in with my show and and the, the, that I'm doing in Edinburgh. Um, and yeah, the album's on Spotify, or you can buy it on Amazon or wherever. 
Yeah, would you ever have thought that? You know, when we was kind of like doing like the old jonglers gigs and stuff like that, and and, and you know, it's such a different circuit there in terms of survival. You know, we're yeah. all doing stuff that we thought was good, but equally, I suppose we were shaping it to what would get us yeah. through a gig there. You, know? you were, and you have to, you can't, like, that's the difference between a circuit act who can play any room mm. under any circumstances, bulletproof. And there are some guys who, you know, they paint the room their colour, they make the room come to them rather than yeah. just doing generic stuff. And there are some really good, you know, circuit comedians, people like Roger Monkhouse and Mike Gunn and Ben Norris and... You know, those kind of people who are just phenomenal acts, Otis Cannelloni, and there, there are loads of them. But those guys, maybe Ben Norris aside, but those guys have never really come to Edinburgh year in, year out and built up their own audience who want to mm. see that guy's thing. And But yet the guys who have done that, you know, somebody like Andy Zaltz, I mean, Andy, you know, he freely admits he was not a great club comic because his stuff was too niche. But he's come up to Edinburgh year out, year in and year out, and he's built his own audience up, and Daniel Kitson and all those guys. And it takes him to another level because once the sort of their audience become fluent in the language of that comedian, if you like, then that comedian can just be themselves and doesn't have to go through that thing that a club comic does of having to spend the first five minutes of the act establishing the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like a job interview every yeah. every single time. Exactly. There's, and there's good things about that. It's really exciting because you're going up there. It's like 2020 cricket, I think, where, yeah. you know, you just right, right, get out of the big shots early because there's no point pissing about. But it um, but it means, I guess, that there's less risk-taking. I mean, guys like, like us around our age group, like coming back to Edinburgh, there's just not that many of us now. I mean, like, as you say, it's people like Kits and stuff like on, on such a, a level. But actually, I remember back in the late noughties, you know, you used to get a fair few circuit guys that would come and do a bit of Edinburgh yeah. year on, year off. That that doesn't really happen now. It's either people that are very well established here or, or just young trying to yeah. make it here. I think a lot of that is also because they've got families and they're like, whoa, you know, mm. I could earn two grand in a month in August or three grand or whatever it is. I come to Edinburgh, I'll probably lose money and yeah. I've got to go all through all the hard work. And a lot of the time they just don't want to put in the hard yards. I mean, I came here, I didn't do come here from 2003 to 2016, I didn't oh, come okay. here. And then 2016, 2018, 2019 I've been, and I, I know I'll come back next year. But you, just, I mean, there is like here, both here, you mentioned Comedy Unleashed earlier, and yeah. there is now like this scene, you know, from, from for guys like us that are yeah. politically, and I think it's always underestimated in terms of social commentary, because that's obviously a big part of your small P political worldview. And mm. there's, there's a few of us now that are in that side of thing. Me, yourself, Leo Kurse, uh, Alistair Williams, Constantine Kissing, obviously Andrew Doyle, Andrew Doyle's character, Titania McGrath, and there's yeah. probably others that I'm, that I'm forgetting here. And, 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 and it feels good that there is this... Simon, like, you know, Simon it, Evans. Simon Evans, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it was kind of doing it without thinking it, yeah. you know, before beforehand. And But now, like, I, I think it's good for, for comedy because it was, it was a legitimate criticism, wasn't it? You know, people used to say, well, they all seem to have the same view on, on, on politics, and, and that was something that needed to change. So as much, you know, as, as some left-wing comics are kind of find our existence annoying I think in a way it's got to be good for them as well isn't it because it makes it seem like it's not a it's better up. for comedy yeah it's better for comedy and, and it really has it's funnily enough it's actually Brexit that's done it it's just opened the dam and it's made people realise that actually there is an appetite for something else and you mm. can say other things and not be excommunicated for saying them but why did and it take Brexit do you think what's different it just about kind Brexit? of it just 
made the world sit up and realise that there is another point of view. Mm. And, and I guess it was it's a, not, it was a it huge wasn't party wake up political. call. It, yeah. it was a. It just Brexit was a wake up call on so many different levels, mm. and it, it it was like pulling back the curtain on on you know how bent our establishment is and and mm. how technocratic it is and and crony capitalist. You know, like we were talking about at the beginning of the of the interview, but it also. Uh, to use a sort of left term, it legitimised non-sort of guardian worldview comedy. Because mm. that was because the, there's plenty of guys who thought along the same lines as us. Yeah, there are still plenty of guys now, but they just would either be character comics or one-liner merchants or whatever. They just mm. wouldn't uh, talk about their politics either on stage mm. or uh, almost as importantly in the dressing room. They just it was basically the silent majority. They they kept it to themselves. Well, I you know because obviously I, I've been talking about that kind of thing since 2013 tentatively. Yeah. But it didn't. It, you know, people just didn't give that much of a shit. I think in the comedy world, people are, oh my oh, a, a Tory comic, but that was just, it. Didn't go much far, further outside yeah. of that. And then you know, in 2015, like I said, the run, the first you run, were, you led the curve. Well, it, but it, but it just was. It was a different time. And then it was like you say, 2016 was. I did a show called Conservative, but yeah. also I spoke briefly in that show about having voted for Brexit the material wasn't very good to be honest but I just spoke about it because yeah. uh, it just happened as well and and it felt like a, a, a completely different world and I, I think it's exciting because one of the problems for left wing comedy I think is is that it, it, it's sort of like a facade is, is uh, you know maverick or or offbeat, but, it, but when it formed the orthodoxy, it's real really hard to do that. Then, and I don't know, maybe like we have like a sort of East Coast West Coast thing at some point. I think it's yeah. It, I mean, I don't think we should have like drive by put downs, uh, <laughs> like political comedians taking each other out with, with, with zingers. But I think it's I think people are looking into comedy and they're intrigued. Well, by the it. the non orthodox left view mm-hmm. is winning the argument. It won the Brexit argument. It's winning the political argument now with Boris Johnson. It's winning, like, the intellectual argument, guys like Jordan Peterson, mm. you know, people like that. Um, you know, that famous interview he did with Kathy Newman, and he mm. just pretty much out-argued her. And, um, you know, it's winning the argument. And in comedy, you know, the best stuff at the moment is, is not coming out of the left. Now, there's been times in the past when it has... You know, particularly, you know, the big alternative movement, comedy movement, the 80s, that's, that, was, that was brilliant for comedy. But at the moment, you know, the other side is, is producing the more interesting material. I mean, I, cer- I certainly think that, but it, I wonder, is it, are, we, are we biased? Is that just what we think? Of course I we're think, biased. I think, I think, I think objectively... Because we've had... The argument has been suppressed so long. Yeah. It's just percolated mm. and strengthened. And... You know, for example, the free speech argument. You, you know, the people who... Uh, the right answer is free speech, and those who advocate free speech are winning that argument. Mm. And there are other comics who say, we shouldn't have free speech, you can't say this and you can't say that. And and I'm I'm kind of like, you know, I don't particularly want to say that, but I do want the right to have... I do want the option to say that. Mm. I and don't want to censor that altogether. And it would have been incredible to guys of our sort of like age, age group where the, the, the right of somehow own the free speech thing yeah. or seen to be owning it because that was inconceivable for me it's, it, I would yeah, never have thought it in the 90s how, yeah I mean I this the whole right left thing it's I don't see it as a right left thing right. I see it as authoritarian v libertarian yeah. you know and you know going back to what we were talking about before you know I'm, I'm with Corbyn on social stuff a lot of social stuff 
uh, maybe not with him on the on the on the semite issue, but on the other <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and then I'm with Rhys Mogg on low taxes and stuff like that. Mm. But you know, they're all libertarian things, whereas you know, you know, Theresa May's nanny statism or or guys going around going, you can't say this, you're not allowed to say that, you're not allowed to think that, and then other guys going, you're not allowed to keep your own money, your what you earn is ours, and we 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 spend it better than you do. No, I just don't agree with any of that. And so the libertarian argument is winning the authoritarian argument. It's beating it everywhere you look. Okay, so we do uh, the letters thing now. We have a few people that, and this can be anything from politics, just personal okay. life. Uh, this one is because um, I told that people, uh, a few people that you were on, and this is from Amy in Cambridge. I've got ten grand. I want to invest. What's the best option right now? Ten grand. Well, the, when we're recording this, yeah. to the point at which this interview actually goes out, yeah, uh, you know, there might be a change in in uh, thing. But if you don't, everyone. Like the potential of Bitcoin, even mm. at today's prices, with all the gains there have been, the potential that Bitcoin has to become the default cash system for the internet is so huge that, um, you know, it's, I'm not saying it, that will happen, but it's potentially so big, you can't not have some exposure to it. Right. So everyone should, own, even if it's just, you know, 100 quid's worth, 500 quid's worth, a grand's worth, everyone should own a tiny bit of Bitcoin. How much does it cost uh, as we're talking right now? I think it's now it's like $10,000 of Bitcoin, but you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy a, you know, a, a fraction of a Bitcoin. Um, I would also recommend everyone own some gold. Yeah. Always own some gold. But, you know... And a Kalashnikov. <laughs> and, but the... Uh, sterling... Yeah. If you're a forex trader, sterling is so undervalued against the euro, the dollar, the Swiss franc that because of Brexit, but it's it's a political thing. It's not an it's economic, uncertainty, isn't it? It's yeah. uncertainty. But yeah. so, you know, if Brexit once Brexit is resolved and we know what we're doing, whether we're leaving with no deal yes, yeah, or we're leaving with a deal, whatever, once we know what we're doing and everyone knows where we stand, sterling is so undervalued, I think sterling's going to have a big bull market. I like that on several levels. I just like the, I just, it feels good. Sterling's coming back. There you go, Amy. Buy gold, buy guns. You didn't say that, I'm saying that. But sterling won't go anywhere until we know what's going on with Brexit. So Bitcoin is definitely a lead one there. Uh, this is from Tom in London. My wife was very feminist when we had our son. No guns, etc. Uh, however, since we've had our daughter, she's gone super girly. Everything's pink. She spends hours <laughs> putting her hair in plaits. <laughs> Has she become an idiot? Um, should I leave her? <laughs> uh, this is a, it's an interesting one I suppose like blokes face now is to... Because there are some blokes... I love the like, fact that she's gone girly and that makes her an idiot. Yes. <laughs> well, I suppose if he saw her, maybe it sounds like he admired this part of her that was very yeah. prince. I'm not necessarily on the same page. I don't give a shit about that stuff. But he maybe liked this about his missus, that she was very progressive. Yeah. And now she's had a, a daughter. She's sitting there doing plats and stuff. Um, if, sp- have you got... How many kids have you got? I've got one. I've got a son, three and a half. Okay. So, like, I've got two boys and two girls. Mm. And, you know... I do think having young kids and just seeing how different the mm. boys are from the girls, how early on how different they are, mm. and how you know boys gravitate to boy things and girls gravitate to girly things, and they just do. It just kind of yeah. happens whether yeah. you encourage it or not. And you know it doesn't happen in every case, and, and there's always exceptions. But that you know as a sort of broad brushstroke, that just kind of happens, and um, you just sort of 
realise, and, and I have to say, my daughters are so much more competent than my sons mm. and have, like, my sons just do not notice shit that's right in front of them. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, how can you not see that? And if I never, ever need anything done reliably to any sort of acceptable standard, I have to get the girls to do it. Because yeah, yeah. they're just... And I don't know what happens. I don't know how it is that blokes run the world because certainly the experience in my family is that the women are way more competent. And something happens, and it's in around about the 20s Mm. where blokes just just suddenly start overtaking women in the career ladder. So it's like, even, it's in like the three or four years after university, somewhere around about there. Well, I remember when I was a teacher uh, from GCSE to A-level. So GCSE, Girls Organisation, competence ability everything was like, like on average way in excess of the boys especially at English which is yeah. really what I taught uh, and then you got to A level and then the first year of A level that kind of came but then I certainly noticed when teaching the second year of A level something changed and I, I, I don't know what it was and I'm not saying it even meant that the boys overtook the girls but suddenly parity seemed to come out of nowhere and then the boys ideas were a bit more I don't know like a just radical and free from you know I mean the handwriting was still shit you know it's still yeah. fucking tea stains over what they were handing in but we actually you actually looked at the, the content of, of what it was but god boys spend a, a long time clueless don't they They're yeah kinda... I mean it, it's amazing and funny enough my eldest daughter's just turning 17 in September and I've just noticed in her over the last year like she was always you know top of the class and all that kind of stuff and she's really I mean, I don't know if it's just because of the age she's going through or something she's going through at home or whatever it is, but she slipped back. Mm. And whereas the boy, who's now 18, in his, it was exactly when you said it, it was in his final year of A-levels. And we actually took him out of school and we just got him tutors at home and he just did it from home. But, and I don't know if it was that, but something happened and he just transformed. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, one, he's saying like, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there. I don't think you leave in her because that would no, don't, yeah. that would be on record in your family <laughs> life there. That, and it, you know, from from a lawyer's point of view, if you're looking for a good divorce settlement, that is not going <laughs> to play out especially well. Wh- in whatever your whatever's happened has happened naturally, and go with it. Go yeah. with it. that's the other thing when you have kids mm. is you just realise that you're just nature's vessel. That's all you yeah, really yeah, are, yeah. and you realise you think you're in control of everything, but actually you're not. Yes. So go with the flow, mate. Realise that. Stay with your wife. Just finally, because I know you've got a shoe. Uh, this one we do every time now. It's the the uh, sort of imaginary political fight. Um, who would win in a fight between? We've had Hester Tyler and John McDonnell, and we've had uh, Anne Widdicombe and uh, Emily Thornberry. This one's a historical one. Who would win in a fight between Hitler and Mussolini? So we've got to imagine that both men are at their prime physical conditions. Who just straight up fist fight, no weapons. I'm thinking about that. Neither would... Was Mussolini a big man? Like, the old, weird, fucking black-and-white staccato moving thing. Yeah. He, he certainly got his stomp on Mussolini. I I think... I'm going to go... I think Italians mm. have a better tradition in boxing than mm. Austrians do. Mm. And they will probably fight a little bit more dirty. Yeah. So I'm going to go with Mussolini. I think I'd probably turn with Mussolini as well. I don't know what it was about Hitler because I don't know if it was his success as a dictator. You know, like when somebody like gets bullied and then yeah. they become a monster. The fact that he took it to that level means I think he was a shit fighter. Like I think that for all the kind of like the huge rallies and all the stuff he did, I think if you was in a room with him and you kind of looked at him funny, he'd hide under a fucking table. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think- Where I think he might have the edge is 
like he just might be one of those guys who never goes down. What, like the, it, no yes. matter how much you hit him, he just won't go down. And, yeah. and, and so Mussolini might box himself out. It just gets, yeah, it just gets discouraged by yeah. his durability. He never really lands anything. And then, then when Mussolini's fatigued after three days, Hitler just starts <laughs> gnawing on his flesh. <laughs> Didn't think he was going to end that dog. Uh, yeah, and, you know, like if different times in life. I suppose another one would be <laughs> their the worst times as well. So when Hitler was really hitting the crystal meth, and when Mussolini was all sort of flayed out Too much towards, pasta. towards the so I think at that point I think Hitler would definitely have won because he would have just had this unnatural like superhuman strength whereas Mussolini was already looking out into the market square <laughs> thinking I don't, know. I don't think this is going to end well I don't I really don't know that much about Mussolini I'm part Italian and I should know but I just don't it's not we never talk much about Mussolini at school and stuff are we so no. I need, I'd love to read a Bible he's sort of like one of the comedy dictators well, isn't he he had a nickname Il Duce you know I just think of him but did he get? How did he die? I think. I think they. Like, this is. I think he got pulled apart by punters in a square. Like he got sort of. Like, mob. Yeah, yeah. He got like, the angry mob. That's got to be oh, bloody hell. It's got to be the worst way to go. Like, people <laughs> trying to pull your fucking limbs off. Do you know what I mean? And you just think, God, you're like a year ago, I was wiping my ass with gold-plated fucking toilet paper. And now this really. And then once you get into the dictator game, you've got to say it usually ends yeah. like this. You know what I mean? But enjoy. If there's any aspiring dictators out there, enjoy it while it's good. Enjoy the early years. You will get your arms pulled out of your fucking sockets at some point. Um, Dominic Frisby, thanks for coming on the show. Just a reminder about your your book. If it's triggered people's interest in that kind of thing what's the name of the book when's it coming out where can people get the it the book is called Daylight Robbery uh, How Tax Has Shaped the Past and Will Change the Future mm. and so it's a very different way of looking at, at the world and uh, you know even things like you know the birth of Christ Mary and Jesus were in Bethlehem to pay taxes when <laughs> Jesus was born and it was it was non-payment of taxes mm. tourist was, tax well, as well when they checked down. in at the inn as well yeah, Imagine, you know they sting you with that don't they <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, it's fascinating. It's really got me thinking. I know listeners will too. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Cheers, Tom. Just a quick one on the old male mental health thing here, and this one might be more appropriate to men in middle age, and it might just be me, really. But... Um, there is a point, right, where you've got a small kid, right, and you're moving house, and this is obviously about me. Let's just let's just get that out there. But you just got to sort of get on with shit, right? You know what I mean? You're expected to get on with shit, and it is something to cope with, isn't it? Because you're still like a pathetic, fucking whiny little boy inside. But you know, it just it's just evolu- in an evolutionary sense. You should be just burying that stuff and getting on with it. But what what do you do? What do you do when when no one Gives a shit. There's 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 a there's a thing in um, Mary Poppins. I'm not saying no one I know gives a shit about me, but I'm saying I always remember that scene in Mary Poppins, right, where uh, Dick Van Dyke, Bert, he's talking to the Banks children, and they're basically bitching about their dad, the selfish little fucks, the Banks children. Uh, you know, again, there's another film as I get older, right? I sort of think like. I think Mr. Banks had it right at the beginning of the film. He just fucking, you know, just wanted a bit of order. He, you know, he just wanted, he's working hard. His wife's off on fucking feminist rallies. And he comes home and the whole house is upside down. Everyone's pissing about, frankly. And Banks comes home. And then this fucking nanny comes in, starts filling the kid's head with fucking voodoo magic, right? And um, and Bert, Bert is the only one, actually, that just observes the bro code, doesn't he? He's, he takes the Banks kids aside. They're bitching about him. And he's like, oh, who, who looks after your old dad, eh? Poor old, your old dad goes to work there. He's fucking depressed. 
I've gone brummy now. It, that's how shit Bert's accent was. That it's impossible to quantify it. So, so that is a, is is a challenge, right? That, but that's that's your job as a man. I would say that maybe the thing to do is uh, is just cry in private. That's what I would do. Just, just, just check that the coast is clear. You know what I mean? You know, people don't want to see as much as you know. Society claims it's all right for men to cry. No one wants to actually fucking see it. So just, uh, yeah, lock yourself in the bathroom. Um, have a cry. Maybe in the shower. Shower is a great place to cry um, because if you do get caught, no one even knows. It just uh, blends in with the general. Is this tragic or funny? I don't fucking know. Um, cry on a on a running machine. People are not expecting that one. So then you can cry in public, but people won't know. They just think that you're sweating, you know, and, and you're, the grimmest look on your face, right? It would just look like you're really fucking pounding that treadmill. That's another problem with men crying that people don't want to talk about is that uh, men look fucking awful when they do it. You know what I mean? A lack of experience. They just, it's so, because it, you, you build it up too long, right? It, when it comes, it's just like a massive shit. It's it's going to tear something. <laughs> oh, good God. Look, I don't really know what I'm saying in this male mental health. Maybe it's just a, like a thing of kinship. Um, and look, I'm not saying that, that women don't feel... Eh, fuck, it's not about women. We talk about women's mental fucking stuff. Women share shit with each other. You know, they're much better at, at kind of unloading this in their own way. What I'm saying is if you're a bloke at the moment and you're busy and you're the breadwinner and you, you've you've noticed that it's not really appropriate for you to burden other people with your shit, first up, well done for being, for fucking manning up and doing that. But equally, you know what I mean? Just sometimes, just have a little, have a little cry. That's it. Come on, you can do it. Think about, you know... Think about the end of uh, Avengers Assemble Endgame 2. That's pretty fucking sad, isn't it? Yeah, look, there, 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 now you're going, all right? And just uh, lock the door and have a little cry over Tony Stark. So that is the end of uh, this week's show. As ever, I read out reviews, but only the five-star ones. Only the five-star ones. We had a few... We've had a few recently, actually. Uh, there's one from David from Nottinghamshire. It was quite a long one, but I've just say I appreciate that, David. I'm not going to read it for two reasons. One, because it's uh, it's long, and two, I, I don't know how to do the Nottingham accent. I don't know. Well, yesterday, they've got a weird lilt in the middle. So um, thank you for your comment, Dave. Uh, there was a guy called Lad from Leeds. This is pretty funny. He says, uh, I thought this was fresh, insightful, and funny. But then, as a lever, I obviously didn't know what I was listening to. I didn't have all the facts. And as I'm over the age of 32, I shouldn't be using technology like this anyway. Um, that's pretty funny. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, of course we leave us. We don't, we don't understand this stuff. He just saw my podcast written on the side of a bus, you know? Um, what else have we got here? We've got uh, Harry Sorkin. Uh, funny, clever and endearing. Endearing? Oh, Harry. You fucking flirt. Uh, funny, clever and endearing. This podcast has helped me discover new comedians like Leo Kurse and has made me feel less guilt- guilty about, whisper it, wanting the UK to run its own affairs. I love that. Don't stop, Jeff. God, this is weirdly sexual, Harry, but the I love the fact that for you, but wanting Brexit to happen is this cheeky, illicit thing. I know who you are, Harry. I know which guy you are. You're surrounded by fucking Remainers. Yeah, you fucking heroic splinter cell, Harry. Just keep, just keep fighting. Just, just feed back to me, yeah, on on a uh, on a on a burner phone. What these pricks are saying. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, listen, thanks for that. And thanks for, there's been quite a few five-star reviews recently, so thanks for those. Keep them coming. And like I say, I will read a couple of them out at the end of every episode. But for now, keep it Brexit. What most people think.